Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mind, but you're stuck with me as your host, at least one of them. Uh, with me, uh, as always these days, I have Mr. Cody Bontecue. How are you doing, Cody? Hey, hey, Internet. I'm doing fabulous. It's uh, another sunny blue sky day here in Hawaii, so I can't complain. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. <laughs> and with with us today, we have a returning guest coming to us from Poland, Mr. Jacob Andruski. How are you doing, Jacob? Yeah, quite good. In Poland, there is no such good weather as for Gonti, <laughs> for us, for, for Cody in, in Hawaii. But <laughs> it's, I would say, quite warm evening, so it's not that bad. Nice. Right on. So for those of you who might be having a little bit of deja vu, uh, we recently had Jacob on with us back in episode 211 about performance and next. Uh, so you can look that up. That was from about from March of this year. So if you want to hear about performance and next, go back and, and listen to that episode. Uh, for today, we had a few different topics we want to talk about. So I'm going to hand it off to Cody and go from there. Yeah. Hey, um, so I've been following you, Jacob, on Twitter for for a while now and love most, all of your content, really. And um, something that's stuck out to me is how you've gotten really involved with the, the ecosystem, specifically like the Nuxt open source community. And I'm curious what got you involved in Nuxt and open source and um, kind of like what that looks like, you know, like what I, I've been writing Nuxt for years now and I've never actually written a module or some sort of like open source installable package that works within Nux. So I, I would love if you could kind of teach us teach us the ropes, what, what goes on. Sure. So for me, it started uh, when I when I joined the company that I work uh, for until today, which is which is Vistorefront. And back then, it was almost three years ago, right right now, we were building a storefront. Like the storefront template for e-commerces that was purely view two, which was three years ago. It was already old. So we decided to create a new version of the storefront and it was based on Nuxt. And I didn't have that much opportunity to work with Nuxt. Uh, I used it for, for small like, hobby projects. However, I haven't really had a chance to create like big enterprise projects with it. So when I joined the, the company, we back then we started building like a lot of integrations. There was a lot of community around the product um, that was focusing on adding new integrations, new modules. And I joined the company as a person who was working mainly in the UI part, like the front front end of the front end, I would call it. So um, the, co the component library which is called Storefront UI, which a uh, few months ago also was released as a version two, which supports view free, it supports React as well. So if you want to check it out, I highly recommend that because it's, we, we spent a lot of time rewriting it to, to match the current needs for the, for the community. So I was not particularly involved in the Nuxt ecosystem. However, I really enjoyed this whole like module approach where you have the core ecosystem, the, the core framework, the core product. And you have those modules that basically allows you to very easily integrate with some CMS, 
or maybe a search engine or add image optimization, stuff like that. So because I was working in a different area and I really enjoyed those like integration part where you could integrate one tool with another, I wanted to try it by myself, try if, if I can make something work. And I started building very small and not very, uh, I would say, professional modules. They were basically more or less wrappers around something else. So for example, I created a module that was supposed to compress your assets. And it was basically using another package, but in the Nux ecosystem. And then throughout those small packages that were more or less useful for the community, I started building the ones that started to make much more sense. Like you mentioned the, the module that I recently created, maybe not recently, but I'm quite active developing it, which is the security module for Next. And, and before we, sorry, before we get too mm-hmm. far, um, could you just explain what like a basic wrapper would look like on a module? Because because I do see that, for example, like um, the side base's Next auth is just the wrapper around Next.js's auth, and and. Is that just like, a, are you just somehow exposing the APIs or are you directing it to just be like client side versus server side? Um, what, what does the code look like in, in a situation like that? So more, it, it really depends on the, on the implementation. However, the, the general idea is to broad something that is usually requires some work from the developer so that this developer doesn't have to do that. So for example, as I mentioned, this compression, usually the developer would need to install the plugin itself by by himself and maybe configure some options that can be repetitive stuff. So you can do Mm -hmm. something like this for for the user, for the the community member and for the developer. So basically those kind of wrappers, they take some package or, or utility that is already available. But for example, to make it work with Nux, it requires maybe some kind of configuration uh, that is repeat- repeatable. Like, you know, yep. it's, you, you, it you do doesn't, it <laughs> yeah, it doesn't differ from one project to another. It's usually the same. And, and so, because of that, you can just do it for the user. And so that's kind of like a, like a, a user in a, if there was in a module, the user would just be uh, writing their own plugin code and basically hooking that into Nux. Yeah, something like this. Something like this okay. plugin. Maybe as you mentioned, maybe it it should work on the on the client side or the server side. However, in mm-hmm. in general, those wrapper kind of components uh, modules they are usually like wrapping certain functionality. As you, as you mentioned, the side based module for off, it's. It's not only wrapping stuff, it also adds some code as well because it's it adds some, for example, composables that are Vue and Nux specific. So right. we can have a library that is, let's say, JavaScript or TypeScript only. So you take it into Nux with the module and you add some Vue or Nux specific stuff. Okay. Such as composables, yeah. such as maybe Vue components for login or stuff like that. And you can auto import it so that users won't have to import it manually. They can just use it in your in your project. 
which is by the by the way the the auto import of of Nux is like in my opinion one of the core fundamentals of developer experience. It should be in any kind of project. It's it's funny. It it's so simple, but it it makes your component files just beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's just for those things that are you know used across the application, like for example, view imports for ref, for computed, for unmounted, for stuff like that, mm -hmm. you probably use it everywhere. So not having to have this specific import everywhere is what I what I believe is like pure developer experience. So huge kudos to to Anthony for creating such a such a plugin. Anthony Fu. So for yeah. but for something like that, having a global import, obviously you have to weigh it against the performance of having it imported everywhere, even if places uh, where you might not need it. I'm assuming the pros of the global import far outweigh the performance hits for something like that. So Anthony created it in a very smart way. So it's it doesn't work like it's a global import. It's more like after you are uh, running your project, it scans all your code. And in places where you should be like registering this import, it adds it, it adds it for you. So mm -hmm. basically it it's not like global import so that you have it like on the top of the file and it's loaded everywhere. It's more like when it should be, it is added by the code. So it doesn't affect the performance in general of, of building and, and running your application because it's only added when it's needed. Is it so it's not is it similar yeah. to tree shaking? Is it is that what's occurring under the hood? Yeah, I, it's to me it seems sort of the opposite. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jacob. Instead of tree I would shaking, say it's it's a different different um, different aspect, but still related to 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 improving performance of of packages and um, and utilities that you might use. Well, so tree, tree shaking shake is like where you have everything and you get rid of what you don't need. And it sounds like the way this import works is it says, okay, I need it here, so I'm going to import it. So you're adding it only where it's needed instead of having a whole bunch and then having to, to remove what's not needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's more like that. Oh, so it's really brilliant. So it's it's not that, as I mentioned, it's global import. So it, it affects all your, all your files. It's more that it is an in intelligent import that it's only added when it's needed. So, and I'm sure really it's open one. sourced somewhere. I'm sure Anthony has the code. Is it just yeah, like yeah, crazy regex? I or? think view uh, auto, it's out, unplugging auto import, something like this. If you, if you type view auto import or unplugging auto import, I'm sure you will find it there. Yep. The and it's used in Nux by default. So you can use it in view. Uh, I'm using it in my project uh, as well, just like view free only, and I'm using it obviously in, in Next wherever needed. Uh, super cool. Yeah, the registration is like easily very easy. It's one line of code. You just need to add the vid plugin, and if you want some kind of like more advanced uh, patterns for auto importing, maybe some custom uh, custom links or custom routes, you can just add it there. Otherwise, it, it just has the like auto imports for view, for view router, for uh, vvalidate, stuff like that, au automatically yeah. registered. Cool. And I imagine it, it plugs into Nux 
as well. And like you were saying, it, it kind of also auto imports uh, additional modules or do you as a module author have to configure that? Uh, I have to configure that, but thanks to how the new Next version was designed. So it was designed with modules in mind. So because of that, when you are building a module, you have access to basically all the utilities that Next uses and you have it available for you as a, as a module author. So thanks to that, the auto import of composables, components, which are coming with the module, it's just one line. You just need to call use um, auto import, I think it's called auto import, and you just pass it the the, um, the route where the files that needs to be auto imported are, and that's it. So it doesn't require you to hook somewhere or write some custom logic. You just mention where the files are that should be auto imported, and they are being done. They are being auto imported for you. So, for example, if you could look at the Algolia module, the one that I created for Next, one of the free modules that I'm currently really actively maintaining. It auto-imports components such as DocSearch. Uh, if you are, say, looking at the Next docs, there is usually this Algolia search somewhere where you can just type what you want to learn about. So this is, for example, the component that is coming from my module and it's auto-imported so that you don't need to register. Same for composables. If you want to search through Algolia or get some like product recommendations or stuff like that, they are also auto-imported. So there, mm. there's less lines of code to achieve the same results. This is what we as developers really enjoy, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's... Mm. I know Anthony Fu is kind of a legend. Every He seems to have his fingers in everything that's um, changing the world right now, at least in the next yeah. world. There was this great post by Evan Hu, creator of Vue, mm -hmm. uh, when he mentioned that one evening he thought about building a test runner, like unit test runner based on Vite. And then the next day he noticed that Anthony already created one which probably some of you are using today, which is called uh, Vitest. And yeah, I'm using it in many of my projects and it's amazing. So yeah, <laughs> Anton is true legend in terms of open source and projects and stuff that you are probably using, but you are not aware of. Yeah, I think Vitest is, has it overtaken Jest in the, in the testing like downloads per month? I, I think it's, either overtaken it or on track. It's it's growing rapidly. I think it can be really on track, especially that, you know, the, the speed of running it's, test. Yeah. There is a great, um, great talk by Markus, Markus Oberlichner. Sorry, mm -hmm. Markus, for probably pronouncing your last name wrong, but <laughs> you will know who, who is Markus. So I was there in VueJSDE in Berlin, and Markus was giving a talk where he was comparing how much like running the test in Vitest and Jest and in Cypress as well, how they differ in terms of the time of running them. So he started running the test. I'm not sure if it was Cypress or, or Jest, but one of those two. He started running them at the start of his talk and at the end of his talk, so after about 20 minutes, the tests were mm -hmm. still running. Well, in the same time, at the same time, he started running the test in Vitest, 
and in like 15 seconds they were gone. So <laughs> you, you see like this, the difference between the time that is needed to compile and run the tests. So I, I am not surprised if Vitesse test will overrun just. Yeah, it, it, it would be silly if it didn't. Like that's that's like world changing speeds. You know, if you just compile every website that has that runs tests and how much time is wasted and energy wasted. Oh. Um, and then you just plug in Vitesse because it's pretty much just the cop. You just change the imports right from Jest to Vitesse and it, it all just works. Yeah, we get to talk to Marcus. We get to talk to Marcus coming up here in a few weeks. Yep. That'll be good. Yeah, I know he's writing a book on uh, um, testing view applications. And so he's been writing it, I think, over the last year or two. And so it'll be really fun to get deeper into some of those benchmarks. Yeah, one one last thing regarding Vitesse. Um, So Mm -hmm. I would say that if more, if, if there was more work Vitess to work on the backend of the web development as well. I would say that it could easily like overrun Jest. However, if you take a look at the, for example, Nest.js, which is the backend framework based on Node.js, uh, which is kind of similar to to Spring um, from Java. So back there, the Jest is like the go-to solution for unit testing. And I'm, I don't think it will change because it sticks there very well in terms of the integration and stuff like that. So I would say if there was some kind of a port of Vtest for the backend to support maybe end-to-end tests as well there, that would be like game changer. Then I would say like 95% of developers would switch to Vtest. However, right now I believe Vitas is focusing mainly on the on the front end testing, and because of that, Jest is m- maybe still still winning because it has this other part. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, and and I know Jest has been around for years now, so that that yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I actually wasn't aware that Vtest is purely a front end testing um, framework. Uh, do do you know why that is? Does it run in the Browser? No. What what's I will, stopping it I mean, from going to the back end? I would say that um, maybe some dependencies. Like I'm using Vitas only on the on the front end. I'm using it in Nux as well, but Nux is more or less like fu- full stack. It's not like back end, it's not like fr- right. front end, it's more like full stack. So you can use it there. But for test utils in Nux, you also use another tool which is free. Which is recently quite um, was recently quite popular, which is Playwright, yes. which is also based on on Vit. I'm not sure if it's based on Vitas, but on Vit for sure, and it somehow mm-hmm. manages to to do those tests on the front end and the back end. And I think that right now Playwright is much more popular than Vitas. Let me check. So, yeah, for what it's worth, um, I had Debbie O'Brien, who is the main public person, I guess you call it, from Microsoft on Playwright on here. Uh, and I'll find the episode number, but we talked about it and went over it quite extensively. And it so Vitesse really awesome. has 10K yeah. stars, while Playwright has 55. So yep, mu- much more. Like 55K. Not I was going to say 55 stars? That's not- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, View 206 is when we talked to Debbie about Playwright. 
Okay. And uh, sorry, what do you know what day that was of the or what year? It was January of this year, January of 2023. Oh, nice. Okay. So it's very relevant. Oh, anything uh, I talk about is relevant. But uh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's it all just moves new. so fast. You yeah, know? that's right. So <laughs> um, uh, but cool. Yeah, Jacob, I was just, uh, is there anything, what, what are you most excited about in like the Nux and View world right now? What are I'm curious how things are going for you. Um, I would say that for I'm always really waiting for the conferences, mm. both for the ones that I'm speaking at and for those where I'm just an audience looking at the the, the other guys talking. And for the when they are, they, these conferences um, are happening, there is usually some kind of announcement. Around so, for example, there was Vue 3.3 when Evan was in London for Vue.js London, and for for other frameworks there are also some some announcements. So I'm quite close with the with the next next uh, next core team. Uh, actually, after today, I will have the, the the meeting with the Aurora team, which is the guys from Chrome, where we will be talking about how. We can make Next more performant. So those kind of stuff, they are really great in terms of what you can do for the user so that the app will be more performant. So there are a lot of stuff that when you look at them, you just think this is very basic stuff, very easy. However, if you take into consideration that those kind of stuff are being done automatically, this is like a game changer. And what I mean by that is, for example, a package from from um, from Daniel Rowe, which is called Fontaine. And it's both a Next module, it is a Vite plugin that you can use. And what it does, it automatically adjusts your fonts so that this layout shift where you are downloading or fetching the custom fonts so when you are using this Fontaine, it will make the switch or this layout shift smaller. So you may think, okay, this is really basic stuff. However, if it's done automatically and you don't have to take care of it, take care of it, it's another level. So those kind of small improvements that if you add all of them on top, your app can be really, really performant. And those kind of improvements are if you look at the code, you will see that there is a lot of like logic inside of it. And the, the result might sound simple. As I mentioned, it's like changing the fonts a bit so that the layout shift is smaller. But if you take, a, take it into consideration that there are so many of those improvements that are being done in the framework by you, for you, by the core team, this is next level, I would say. So I'm especially looking for those kind of improvements. Recently, there was one a new version of Next released where there was a support for Capo, Capo.js, which is a new project created by uh, Rick, Rick Viscomi, the guy from, from Google. Uh, he is really into web performance. He created a book about um, optimizing performance and also um, auditing performance with web page tests. 
And he is like out or behind uh, CRUX dashboard. I think it's called like this. So you have access to um, Chrome user experience, uh, results from your website, stuff like that. So he created this Capo.js that what it does is basically reorders your meta scripts, meta tags in your application. And thanks to that, it's makes it makes it more performant. Maybe not as much, but just a tiny bit for you. So those kind of improvements are especially the ones that I'm looking for because they are like code-based. I mean that there is a code, there is a logic that it's doing something for you so you, that you don't have to think about it manually. You just install it and it does it for you with good practices that are based on experience of the guy who created the the package. Yeah, that was something we... Capo.js, that was something Daniel was talking about a lot last time we were on on the... Um, when we had him on the show. And it, yeah, like you were saying, it's just all these little incremental performance gains that are happening behind the scenes. And personally, I, I rely on that a lot. I love just kind of like... That's why I just go for the frameworks right from the get-go is because I know they're just optimizing so many things behind the scenes. Um, and it shows in like the Lighthouse scores, everything, like the, the sites are snappy and and run really well. And you don't really have to worry about it, but it's there if you want to. Like it's easily uh, modifiable if you need to get into it, into the guts. But for the most part, you don't even need to know. Um this Fontaine thing is new. That's interesting. But I'll have to look a bit further into that. And so you were talking a little bit earlier prior to the recording, and you were saying you're a DevRel without being a DevRel. And I know you present a lot at, at conferences, and you work for Vue Storefront that's mostly open source or entirely open source. And so I'm just curious, like, how... Why are you not an official DevRel? Because it just seems like you are a DevRel. <laughs> yeah, so I would say that um, the, the thing is that when you start to be a full-time DevRel, you are getting away from coding. Maybe not fully, but some part of it you're getting away from coding. Because as a DevRel, as your position suggests, you are working to make the developer relations better. And developer relations or developer experience in general, the, how developers are using your product, it's usually related to other stuff than the code itself. So it is about documentation, it is about video tutorials, it is about conference talks, where you get to know the tool actually from a person you probably have seen already somewhere on the internet and doing stuff with the community, maybe some kind of hackathons, maybe some kind of like meetups, stuff like that. So as a full-time DevRel, you are focusing more on those kind of, I would say, soft skills rather than um, coding itself. So as a developer, I like love coding i really enjoy it uh, I, I this is what i do every day the daily basis and this is what i especially like and i 
considered it, like moving fully into, into DevRel position. However, I realized that there is still a lot of things that I would like to learn. And going fully into DevRel would basically not allow me to do that. I would be focusing more on talking to developers, maybe doing some sales presentations, maybe doing some, as I mentioned, events or stuff like that. And because of that, I would be focusing more on those soft skills, I would say, which are not bad. And I really enjoyed this part as well. So I decided to create some kind of a mix between those two. So on the daily basis, I'm a like developer. So, and I'm a full stack developer, which I enjoy even more. And I'm saying full stack and it's like purely full stack because I'm writing like CSS, I'm writing SQL queries. I am writing some Terraform code for, for connecting to, to cloud GCP, stuff like that. So basically whenever there is a need for someone to jump in and solve some kind of an issue, I jump in and do that. So this is what I enjoy the most, that I'm not you know, aligned with one group only. And when there, there is a problem, I cannot help with it. It's just whenever there is a problem, I could just jump in. However, being only with the code wouldn't be great for me because I enjoy sharing and I was doing it back then before I even started like working as a developer. Because mm-hmm. when I started learning about programming, I was part of the like, scientific lab in my university because my university wasn't very like technical one. It was more about the business. So business economy rather than IT. So we had this kind of a scientific club where majority of people was learning programming. And there was few of the guys who were who already had some programming knowledge and they were sharing it with, with other students because lecturers weren't that experienced, I would say, in modern development, especially. <laughs> um, yeah, and because of that, I joined this this scientific club, this this group, and I s- enjoyed it so much that I stepped from the like learner path very fast and started to be a teacher. And I enjoyed this part really much. And when I joined my first and the second company, I was pure like engineer. So I was with my laptop, with the code, just there building some enterprise functions or, or applications which were used by the users, but they weren't open. And looking at those like open source code that was there, looking at those speakers at the conferences, I was thought it would be nice to be among them somewhere <laughs> or sometime in the future. And so so my journey with this like being a content creator as well started when I joined Vistorfund, which you also asked uh, if it's like open source, fully open source, maybe some part of it it's open source. So the product itself, the the first one when the company was started, it was full full open source. It was actually an open source. So before there was a company, and they had this view storefront project which was which was fully open source. It was built by a few guys, and then it was 
like developed over time with the help of the community. So it was very popular. And because of that, the founders were able to create small company there. And right now it's, it's, it grew to about 100 people, I think, right now. So it's, it's wow. quite a big company right now. So it's not as open source as it was back then, because at certain point you have to focus more on the enterprise because the company is growing, you need more money, you need more developers. You need to basically build an ecosystem around the product so that the, the customers and users can use it more. So right now, the, the product, the main product, moved more into the enterprise part. So for the customers, however, we, for the open source, we focused uh, really much on the project that I already mentioned here, which is Storefront UI, which is like the component library for e-commerce. So it supports Vue as well, because uh, for sure, because it's like Vue Storefront. However, it also supports React, which might be interesting because the company is called Vue, but still we figure out that we need to create uh, let's say a part of the of this library that will support React because there is a lot of React developers out there who want to have those kind of easy to use components, performant, accessible by default for e-commerce websites. So the company is, I would say, 50-50. So there is some things open source you can use freely and easily. And there are also some enterprise parts where they are aimed for the bigger companies, bigger customers. I'm, I'm curious, were you a part of the um, view to React uh, kind of like transition or I don't know what the right term would be, but rewriting these view components in React? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't part of it. No. I was looking at the progress. However, I wasn't the one building it. I, so I have some, like, let's say, understanding how it was done. So mm -hmm. basically the, the, the core part was to create shared functionality. So things that were, could be shared easily across those two other packages. So obviously the styles could be shared. There are things that could be shared as well, which are the utilities. So stuff like, for example, handling the um, outside clicks or handling some kind of interval stuff or mouse-related stuff, which is basically like view use. If you ever use view use library, they have those kind of utilities there. So the Storefront UI has those kind of wrapped in a package, a shared package. And then you have the the framework-specific uh, components, which are also using the Tailwind styles. And w was that like these um, like framework specifics, it, is that like managing state or um, using those their like framework-specific hooks? I would say more hooks. So, so hooks, so you have hooks in React, you have composables in Vue. Right. Um, you have different syntax, obviously, for, for, for React and, and Vue. Um, so those kind of differences. So mm -hmm. the stuff that could be shared was put, was added to one package. 
However, the like pure front-end, I would say, code was added to storefront uh, UI slash React and storefront UI slash Vue. And because of that, it's more also, it was easier to develop because some of the functionalities could be easily reused. And there was less code to maintain and it was it was easier, basically. However, you, you ask about the adding the React version. However, for this particular version of Storefront UI, it wasn't a, let's say, adding React to Vue. It was more about rewriting the whole library. Because the, the problem was that this initial version of, of Storefront UI was created for initial version for Vue Storefront, which was Vue 2 based. So the Storefront UI that majority of the users were using, it was still using Vue 2 in you know, 2021, which is, or 22, which is basically not so long ago. And because of that, it wasn't using Tailwind, it was using SCSS and SAS. It was using um, CSS variables and other concepts that you don't really use nowadays, I think. So because of that, the, there was this decision that if we are aiming to make this library better, we need to rewrite like it completely, start from the scratch and think through what this library needs and how it should look like, what the API should be. and basically work on the concept, like core concepts of performance, of accessibility, because they were assessed somehow in the first version, but not as much as they are right now. And because of that, it needed like a complete rewrite. Without it, it wouldn't be possible because, as I mentioned, Vue 2, CSS, uh, there was also JavaScript, not TypeScript there. So, you know, this this kind of stack is kind of old today, I would say, deprecated whenever you started. <laughs> that that that's actually incredible. And and you, this entire rewrite only took a year? Is is that what I understood? It took a bit more because there was a lot of like um proof many proof of concepts around it. So for example at a certain point we were uh, investigating into mitosis. I don't know if you've seen this tool. It's the tool from Builder.io. So Builder have Quick, they have Party Town, and they also have Mitosis. So this Mitosis tool, it's it's another JS framework, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, but the fact is that it is also some sort of a compiler that you write one code, like in a sentence syntax, and it can output the code in Vue, in React, in Angular. So it seemed like a perfect solution for us because we wanted to have one code base that could serve more than one framework. So we tried it, uh, but we failed <laughs> because this Mitosis tool was great if you are building a button, but if you are building anything more complex, we started to see a lot of issues. Uh, with the compatibility, with the support for for like framework specific stuff, and so the whole rewrite took a bit more, more or less two years, I would say. But the version that you can use right now, you can use it in Vue, 
free, you can use it in um, Next, you can use it in um, React, Next, those, those kind of frameworks right now. And a lot of, I would say, love was added to this library right now in terms of design patterns, in terms of developer experience, in terms of reusability and stuff like that. So, for example, in terms of the developer experience, with the Storefront UI 1, you had, for example, the component which was called product card, which was like, let's say, a card which had like a product image, product title, some kind of maybe description, and the button up to card. And if you are building like a very simple demo, it could work because you can just drop those components and they will look relatively nice and they will be very, very fast. So you can accelerate the development time. However, if you wanted to make it a bit more custom, you would realize that you either have to add like a million props and slots to make it more customizable or you have to build it by your own. So we switch from this solution into showing in the documentation, in the examples, how to build those stuff with the blocks that we have created for you. So you won't have component for product card. You will have a component for button, for input, for label. So those like generic um, primitive components. And then for the examples such as product card, search, um, maybe some kind of address form or checkout, you would have the code samples that are using those like block components. But apart from that, you will get, will get like the full template, which is composed by the, the, the storefront V components, regular HTML tags, and logic as well, which was quite crucial to also deliver the logic. So for example, if you are looking at the search bar, you most probably, apart from the view and the functionality to search, you most probably would like to have some guides on how to make it, how to make this component follow some design patterns. So for example, for search, majority of people usually forget about debouncing. So for example, if you are typing something in a search and you type a keyword, like type something, the request for searching gets sent after each key press. So what you usually do is you are adding a debouncer so that after a certain amount of time, after user stops writing, then it will send the request. So this kind of good practices and patterns are added right now to the docs so that when you are building those components, you, apart from just getting the, the, um, the template, you also get those good patterns so that, that you can look at it and use it and make it accessible, performant, and following the, the patterns themselves. So we went for a long way from this old approach to a new one, but the new one is it's much, much, much better. And basically you can use it right now almost anywhere. There is also a fork of it right now uh, that is created by Giorgio, Giorgio Boa, who is a quite active contributor of Quick. And he also created uh, or 
I think it's in progress still, but there was always there were all there were already the demos shown by Philip Rakowski of the quick version of the storefront UI. So we'll have the quick version as well. And I'm not sure if there is one being built by in Svelte, but maybe in some weeks or months we will see. Wow. And uh, are you um so you, so you took this different approach of customization. Um, are you at feature parity or is that even like a real question at this point um, in terms of like the view two version versus where you're at today? Uh, can you solve all of the same problems and more? So I would say um, that right now it is solving more problems. Maybe it's nice. slower. It's it's slow. The development is not as fast as when using the, the first version because with this first version, you were just like plugging like components that were more or less five lines of code. Right now, if you are using those like guide docs, I would call them, you get much more code because it's more like the, you are learning with the docs how to build those components by yourself so that they will match your needs. So I would say that if the problem you're trying to solve was the development speed, like accelerating development, the version two might not be as fast as the first one. However, if you compare the time that you need to build something custom, the second version is much, much better because you have the full flexibility of how you want to build it. But you get this like template that it's basic and should work with majority of cases, but you can customize it the, the way you want. So in terms of like the the true feature parity, I would say that there are not so many. I would say the the, the users that were using storefront storefront UI one, if they want to use the storefront UI two, they should start a new project uh, because. If you're using Storefront UI 1, you are most probably using, we're using uh, Vue 2 or Next 2. And Vue 2 is like end of life, I think, in December this year. And Next most probably as well, because it's based on Vue 2. So it, it will probably be sunset as well. Maybe this year, maybe last year, we will see. So if you are if you want to try the Storefront UI 2 version, I would recommend to go for like view with Vite or Next or uh, view with uh, React with Vite or maybe Next. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That that's quite the um, quite the journey, I guess. It, is there a Storefront UI kind of like a case study or summary of of this entire like? Um, I guess like architecture and how you really built out a UI framework for two different two frameworks, a UI library, I guess for two frameworks. So I'm not sure if it's like written, but for sure Philip Rakowski was giving a talk about it um, during the We Are Developers talk, which was a month ago. Uh, it's not yet uh, out, I think. The, there is no recording yet, but it will be published in a few, few weeks probably. Um, and where he was talking about this whole journey where he was comparing what we had to do to migrate this, this 
library and rewrite it. Uh, it was he was comparing it to Beautify, how Beautify also moved from from certain approach to the current one and the headless UI from from Tailwind Labs and stuff like that. So I as I said, I, I'm not sure if it's out yet. I, I don't think so. But when the recondic will be out, Philip shown the all the pros and cons and the issues we had while trying to build the new library. So what you need to basically what you need to do to create such a library. So yeah. documentation, playgrounds, um, architecture, like constant feedback loops with the users, how to whether this new approach they do do they like it or is it something completely bad and we should go another direction? So there is a lot of work that needs to be done to to follow this path, this path, I would say. But yeah, it, as I mentioned, it will be like available online soon. I'm, I'm actually amazed that View Storefront has, you said upwards of 100 employees. Did I, did I catch you right there? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it's about 100 right now. So when I joined it, it was about 20 people. So mm -hmm. you see the difference. Um, yeah. So the company was quite different back then. Uh, a lot of things were being created uh, like over the weekend, <laughs> I would say. So there was a need to build something. And right now there are a lot of processes which are normal in the company of this size that you need to have those processes of creating new features, new uh, projects and stuff like that. And back then it was more like, okay, guys, there is a need for this feature. We need to have it for yesterday. So who <laughs> has free time work on it. So yeah. it it's a bit different right now, I'd say. Yeah, it's going from uh, the startup environment to a more of an enterprise proper proper company environment. Um, is it is it mostly technical? I mean, I guess it's a hundred people. There's kind of everyone in that. In that, so I would say it's about, I think seventy percent is like the developers or IT in general. So mm -hmm. dev, DevOps, uh, front end guys, back end guys, maybe some guys from from mm, like the BI, business analytics, stuff like that. Oh, yep. So majority is, is technical one. It's like the, the product is for developers. So you need to have right. majority of developers on board to create such a yeah. product. Yeah, I've definitely been seeing Philip uh, talk about Vue Storefront for basically as long as I've written Vue. So you, you guys have been <laughs> around for a while. So it's really neat. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, is there anything else you would like to talk about while we got you here? So maybe because I started to talk about it uh, some time mm, ago, but uh, the, the security module. Yeah. So I created a module that uh, I was also talking about it in, in We Are Developers conference uh, alongside Philip. So we were talking at the very beginning of those like developer experience um, module stuff. So. When I first created the, this module, I thought to myself, okay, maybe it will solve some simple simple cases for, for the users and maybe some of them will like it. 
And I haven't realized how popular this package has become because basically if you look at other modules, so stuff like maybe CMS integrations or analytics or I don't know, something else, there are many alternatives that you can use. However, in terms of security, my module is probably the only one that could solve those kind of issues. And because of that, a lot of people started to use it. And right now it has almost like 500 stars, which is, I would say, quite a good number for a module because it's not like JavaScript package. It's like framework specific module that works only for a framework. So other popular modules that have more stars are basically the image module, which is the module created by the next uh, core team, the module for content, which is also created by, by the um, by the core team himself themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you if you compare those modules which are basically used almost anywhere and the module that I created, which is not as say as widely used because if you look at the security, it's not like mandatory for everyone, which I'm a bit sad, but this is the reality. You work for performance, you, you improve accessibility, but security is okay, we'll handle it later, right? So I'm especially happy that right now with the, the module that I created, more people are using it because the, this seems to there seems to be a lack of knowledge maybe in this area. And this module seems to to help people basically do that. So, and can you can you just give a quick explanation of how what what problems is it solving? You know, is it as easy as just npm install Nux security and you're protected, you're good to go? Uh, I would wouldn't say that you are protected. Uh, it's more like, in some way, yeah, you you are protected. But the thing is that. What this module does, in my opinion, great, is that, as you mentioned, you just need to install it and register it. And thanks to that, what you will get, you will get a lot of recommendations for securing your application um, that are added for you automatically. You don't need to register anything. And so you get things like security um response headers for the browser. You get um, security middlewares that, for example, enable cores or enable rate and um, request size limiting. Stuff like um, cross-site scripting validation, um, what else? Basic auth, um, CSRF, stuff like that. So you get, it's a bunch of middlewares that makes your application more secure by default. And it's based on my experience when developing websites, but more importantly, it is based on OFASP, which is like well-known document or organization and the document that basically tells you what are the most common uh, security risks and security issues right now in web applications. So if you follow OVASP, you will see like 
the issues that I mentioned. So cross-site scripting validation, uh, rate limiting, uh, brute forcing, stuff like that. So this kind of organization and, and the documents, the document lists all those kind of issues. And the module I created tries to solve as many of those without a user needing to worry about it. Just install it and it just works for you. And the thing is, what I learned through it, a bit in a hard way, I would say, is that whenever you are building such a module, you can't just like make it autom- do something by default or do something automatically and just be done with it. This is like half of your work because you have to assume that for sure there will be people who would want to customize it so that your approach won't be the best. There will be someone who might need, who will have different requirements or maybe that person will have better idea than you to solve this kind of issue. So what I learned from throughout building this this module because I have built some of them already for for Next, but the security is the one that I learned the most, I would say, is that you have to create something that will solve the issue for the user without configuration, without him worrying about it. However, you also have to provide almost full customizability of the features that you provide. Because as I mentioned, there will be people who would like to make it more custom. And because of that, when I was building the module, whenever I was adding new function, new functionality to it, I was always adding like full override function, like option. So that whenever user will type, okay, your uh, rate limiting is good, but I want to make it more strict or less strict. Or maybe for the headers, I want to give them a different value than you added. Because for my case, it won't work. I need to customize it in a way so that my application will work well. And thanks to that, if you start thinking at this in this way, you have to develop those modules like the, the work you need to spend on developing those modules or functionalities, it's, mu- it's much bigger because you have to think of the of the cases that the user might have. So maybe they want to disable it completely. Maybe they want to make it a different value. Maybe they want to run it on a certain route only. This is something that I, I created at the, at the very beginning uh, of this module so that it was running globally. So there was no way to maybe set it to a different value for a certain route. There was no option to remove it from a certain route. So you had it globally or or not. And there were many users who were contacting me and saying, hey, your module is really great, but I would like to run it on a certain route or I would like to disable it on a certain route. What should I do? And I was there and, okay, (laughs) so you have to write it for yourself. And it wasn't a great experience. So I rewritten almost all the module code to support those root rules, which allow you to set specific rules for specific routes. So 
right now you have support support for both so you can create those global global rules and those root rules so they are not colliding with each other so you can run certain one globally and for example for certain root you can exclude it or you can make a different value but it is kind of knowledge you get by building such modules that you are it, it's it's kind of funny but you are no longer alone i would say when developing code because if you share it you you create a public repository you share it on social medias there will be people coming and trying it out and they will fire at you with some ideas like how to make it better. Maybe there is some bug that they could report and maybe fix as well. So at certain point, you realize that, as I mentioned, you are not alone and you start to build a small community, like really, really small, because even if you have one person who contributed to your project in some way, even a typo, you start to build those small communities. And what I learned through throughout like buildings, building the modules is that, and it's also brilliant stuff in, in open source in general, that you might be building something, a package, a library, or a module, and you will have your idea on how it should work or what functionalities it should deliver. And then there will be another person on the another part of the world who will just message you or maybe create an issue and they will say okay your project is really good i created i don't know custom thing on top of it or i created a new like mention it okay i will i, I want to recommend you do something it's more like they will already create it and they only want you to check it so it amazes me because, uh, for example, I was working with, with one guy on the Algolia module. He created like this whole crawler functionality for, for the Algolia module that allows you to crawl your application and then based on that, uh, you will be able to index it in, in Algolia. So he created an issue in GitHub where he said, oh, it would be nice to have this kind of crawler functionality in the module. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's good idea. Unfortunately, I don't have experience with it. Maybe you would have some like, guides for me how to how to develop it. And he said, yeah, yeah, I, I will give me some time. I will create a pull request for you. And he basically created like I don't know, 20 files, pull requests, and the tests were done, stuff like that. And I was really amazed. The guy is called Yasilah on GitHub. You can check him out. He's doing a lot of open source contributions for, for, for uh, Next Project. So it's not only for my project, but for other projects as well. So really a great guy to work with. Yeah, I could only imagine that feels so good to have. You know, you, you, you start, you get the ball rolling and then you start getting people's interests and then they start just building it for you and for the rest of the world. Right. Well, we're 
hitting the limits of our time here. So uh, if there's nothing else to talk about, Cody, I think we're going to move to picks. Um, picks. Picks. Picks are part of the show where we get to talk about other things other than next review. Can be next review or tech or books or movies or dad jokes, as the case may be. So uh, since Cody sounds like he came prepared, <clears throat> I will uh, <laughs> I will uh, start us off here. Uh, first of all, I did have a a uh, an article, uh, something I came across on Hacker News today, and it's sort of interesting because it's something I've thought about uh, when I take my kids and, and their friends to the playground. And the question is, how far can you jump from a swing? So. And that's the title of the article uh, written by a guy named Alex Molos, it looks like. And, you know, if you think about it, I've done this when I was a kid and I refuse to do it now as an adult because I don't want to land on my tail or my wrist or something else. Is, you know, when you're swinging on a playground swing, you said, hey, let's jump. And I just have visions of me landing and hitting the back of my head. Uh, I was actually at the playground with my son and his friends a little while ago and saw a kid uh, break his wrist. <laughs> jumping off a swing. So anyway, but what's fascinating about the article is that it's, it's, if you're into math and physics and everything that goes along and calculating this, it's great for you. If I'm looking at it and my eyes are crossing, just trying to understand everything he's putting in there. Uh, I won't spoil it. Uh, I will say that it's longer than one meter and less than 10 meters and that's somewhere in there but uh, we'll put the link in the show notes for sure uh on to the dad jokes of the week i am a known connoisseur of dad jokes and i like to share them with everybody so let's see oh yes uh my wife recently asked me we had a com we're having a conversation about this you know something that happens as you get older about uh, i wanted why i wanted to be cremated when i die you know, instead of being buried in the ground. And I told her, it's my last hope for a smoking hot body. Right. Uh, then another time, this is going to the opposite end of the time spectrum uh, when we had my first child, who just turned 24 yesterday. Uh, I came home from work and she said, this is before I was working from home. She said, the baby's been crying for hours. Can you take over? And I said, sure. So I started crying for hours. And then keeping along that theme, when my daughter was first born, um, uh, we had it scheduled because it was going to be a C-section, but my wife decided to go into labor a little early. So we got into the, uh, into the hospital and the doctor said, okay, it's time to deliver the baby. And I said, actually, we'd like to keep her liver. You know, deliver the baby. Sorry, Cody looked confused there for a second. It took me a second. That. It took me a second. And then <laughs> let's keep delivering. Yes. So those are the uh, the dad jokes of the week. Uh, all right, Cody, what do you got for us for picks? Yeah. Okay. So um, I I'm actually going to be going to Spain in in September. Um, there's a conference called NS Spain, um, and it's actually an iOS conference. Obviously. All of my work is in the web, but I, I like to play around with iOS um, just in my free time. And uh, my talk is going to be on-device whisper. 
So how to get like uh, OpenAI's whisper model on your iPhone and you run like the, the speech to text uh, transcriptions completely locally and offline. Um, and so that's going to be my, my talk, but um, my pick is actually Stanford's CS193P. Um, Stanford has a very good um, Swift and Swift UI course on, on YouTube, and they just came out with the 2023 version. And so um, I'm trying to power through this course uh, because my Swift is actually not great. Um, in, in fact, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty bad outside of like the actual UI component aspect of it. But now that I have this talk to give, I really feel like I have to better my, my Swift skills. And so I've been, I've been grinding that out and highly recommend it. It's an incredibly power, like good course, like by the fourth video, by the fourth lecture, it's gone deeper than most other courses that I've ever taken in documentation. So that's my pick for this week. And uh, I guess I'll pass it pass it to you, Jacob. What do you got for so, us? So I would say, I'm not sure if I have an article um, to, to read because I usually write them. So <laughs> I don't have that much time to read them. Um, well, that's what we would call a shameless plug if you had one that you wanted to, uh, one of your own blog posts that you wanted to. Okay, so about. let me just check which of them were quite popular recently because I also have some which are not as popular that I would want them to be. Um, so I recently started writing more about the architecture because I was focusing about Vue and Nux specifically. But I recently started to write also about the architecture. So stuff like micro frontends or uh, multi-tenancy microservices. Um, so I started a series on my dev tool. Uh, so it's at, it's at Jacob Andrewski. And the series is called Software Architecture. And I have also an article about, is this a performant website? where I'm like sharing my thoughts about what, uh, about the insights. So something similar to what Filip Rakowski created in his talk, you might be using, it's the name of the talk, you might be using like Lighthouse Wrong, uh, which is really, really catchy title. So I did something similar here because I have similar thoughts. Um, yeah, so basically, I would recommend you to check out check this out um, as I'm trying something new. So maybe you will find something interesting there as well. And for uh, not an article, but there will be a next nation conference coming in, um, I believe, in October 1819. Next nation, let me check. Yes, 1819 of October this year where you will most probably learn a lot about Vue and Next. I have already submitted my CFP, so maybe you will see me there as well. All right. Well, we will put uh, links to that information in the show notes. Thank you, Jacob, for coming to us all the way from Poland again. We are truly an international podcast, as I like to say. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you for listening. And before I forget, almost forget, almost signed off. If people want to follow you, 
or uh, give you money or yell at you or what? Uh, you mentioned your Dev.2 blog. Uh, anywhere else? Um, yes. Yeah, so for sure on X. I'm not sure if it's like Twitter. still of, formerly known as Twitter. Officially, right. because I've heard that there are some kind of um, rumors that they are not allowed to use the they they don't have the copyright for X, but yeah, so Twitter <laughs> X at Jacob Andrewski. Um Yeah, I'm also on YouTube, but recently I didn't have that much time to create some videos there. Uh, on GitHub as well, uh, but it's not Jacob Andrewski, it's uh, Baroshem with a B first letter. So, um, yeah, for open source stuff, a lot of them is there. Alrighty. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for your wisdom and expertise in Storefront and Next. And we will talk to everybody next time on Views on View.